Well, how are y'all feeling after Thanksgiving? A little bloated today? But don't feel bad if you overate on uh, Thursday and every day since then. We learned last week in our series on dining with Jesus that Jesus was quite an eater and he was quite a drinker. The Son of Man, Luke's record of this uh, experience, has come eating and drinking. And you say, well, look at him, a glutton and a drunk, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Luke also says, records that they said to him, to Jesus, well, John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But your disciples, they just on and on and on. All they do is eat and drink. And uh, I think I would want to be a follower of Jesus if that's the case. Eating and drinking describes so very much Jesus' approach to life. It was with food that Jesus deepened his friendships, that he included the excluded, that he celebrated the, the kingdom, the presence of the kingdom of God, and that he created a sense of community, especially among those who had felt like they were outcasts. You could almost say that food is Jesus' love language. One of my favorite meal scenes is recorded by John, and you find it in John chapter 21 in the, script, in the Christian scripture. And the scene takes place on the Sea of Galilee after uh, Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. The disciples had been on the sea fishing all night with no fish to show for their effort. They were very likely exhausted and frustrated, and when they were coming back into the shore at the dawn of the next day, uh, they heard Jesus on the shore calling them. And Peter, being Peter, uh, impetuous, just jumped into the water and swam to the shore to talk to Jesus and uh, came out of the water and onto the shore just dripping wet. And Jesus was uh, making a fire and cooking some breakfast over there. And at that moment, Peter smells a hauntingly familiar smell. The word that John uses in John chapter 21 to describe the fire that Jesus was building is found only one other time in Christian scripture, and that is in John 18:18. 18, 18. That's the story of Peter around the fire with other people warming himself on the night that Jesus was arrested and that he was tried. You remember what happened around the fire that night with Peter. That fire was the place of Peter's denial of Jesus. The word fire, that Greek word for fire, it implies a charcoal fire for cooking. And so when Peter smelled that fire on the sea, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, I think he went back to that fire outside of the city of Jerusalem. For Peter, and this is so true with emotions, shame smelled like a charcoal fire. And I don't think he could help but feel again the shame of him denying Jesus when he smelled that charcoal fire. But the good thing about this charcoal fire of John 21 
It was the fire of restoration. The simple invitation of Jesus to Peter was, come and have breakfast. The table is for Peter, and maybe it is for you today, a place where broken people, filled with regret, are invited and where they are made whole, where they feel a reconnection and a restoration. All Hebrew children were raised with the appreciation of the meal. When the Hebrew prophets wanted to describe the kingdom of God coming in its fullest, they would use the metaphor of a meal. The poet, prophet Isaiah, put it like this, that at that day there would be a feast of rich food for all peoples. I love that for all peoples, not just for this group, not for the members only of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is, I just didn't think anybody else was going to make it. But it, for all peoples. And at this banquet, there would be aged wine, the best of meats. And if we didn't catch it the first time, he repeats it, the finest of wines will be there. And I think we'll be able to drink all that wine, and it is alcoholic, but I don't think... I don't think we'll get inebriated with it. I'm hoping. It's just good, good feast. And this metaphor of a meal created in the people a hope for something better than what they were having. In that day that Isaiah dreams about, all the wrongs will be made right and all the hurt will be healed. All the brokenness will be mended. Jesus was rooted in that tradition. That was his life as a Jewish child and as a Jewish man. In ancient Israel, eating with someone established a covenant relationship, a covenant friendship with them. And to eat with someone implied that you accepted them completely and that you embraced them, that you approved of them. And so with Jesus' mealtime habits, he was speaking a new language, and he was building a, an entire new culture, social, cultural, and spiritual culture. Anthropologists refer to it as the language of the meals, and whenever Jesus had a meal, there was a language going on. There were questions, uh, who's in and who's out? Who's invited and who's not invited? Who was eating with whom? And who's in charge? And, and what position do you have, as a guest have at this meal? Are you, is your seat closest to the host? Or are you somewhere down at the way end over there? And every meal that Jesus ate was an answer to those questions. And so we see verses like this. And both the Pharisees and the scribes, the two religious orders uh, of Israel, were grumbling, saying that this one, this Jesus, is welcoming sinners and eating with them. He's not, he's accepting them, approving, because that's what a meal is. You don't eat with someone that you don't approve of. And this man who claims to be a rabbi 
is, is eating with the sinners? Oh my gosh, just in this meal, Jesus didn't have to say a lot. And he was just very subversively but nonviolently redrawing Israel's cultural and spiritual map. He didn't have to talk much. He didn't have to say a lot. didn't have to shout. All he had to do was break the bread and pour the wine. And by these actions, Jesus literally broke the society apart. And by these actions, by his life and his, his worldview, he even challenged families to decide or not to decide to follow his way, to adopt his new social order that he was creating. We see this in Matthew. Jesus is recorded as saying, don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I came to bring trouble, good trouble, not peace. Kind of goes against our whole thing about Jesus and peace on earth, goodwill toward men, Christmas message, doesn't it? I came to turn sons against their fathers and daughters against their mothers and daughters-in-law against their mothers-in-law. And he closes it, you know, your worst enemies will be in your own family. What's up with that? The teaching of Jesus and the family is very different than the teaching of most preachers today about what the family is. How do these words of Jesus help us understand some of the questions that you all asked Denise and me last week after our service, there were so many questions that had to deal with the essence of this question right here. With Thanksgiving right around the corner, what advice would you give to those of us who are going to be walking into an environment where we are not necessarily welcomed because of who we are? Does that passage help us understand Maybe an answer to that question. Jesus never did call upon us. Now hear me really carefully here. Jesus never did call on us to focus on the family. The family was never his focus. You can't be an evangelical Christian today, though, without focusing on the family. And I'm not saying I'm not pro-family. I love marriage, and I, I kind of recommend it. And uh, I love kids, and I love parents. And with all the good, the bad, the ugly that goes with those relationships, Jesus, you just need to go back and read that Matthew passage and just sit in that passage. Jesus' focus was not the family. Jesus' focus was on his new social order and who was going to follow his way. And he said one time to his own family who were disturbed and troubled and embarrassed, Jesus embarrassed his family. They were ashamed of him. 
and he was teaching one time and somebody came in and uh, said, hey, your mom and your brothers are outside. They want to sit, talk to you. And Jesus said, that's not my family out there. My family are those who are willing to do my will. That doesn't mean we disregard our family. It does mean maybe, I don't really know how to apply that. If I just listen to the words of Jesus, it means my biological family may not be as important as a spiritual family one that wants to follow this new social order that Jesus is establishing. I don't know how else to interpret those words of Jesus. This is not my family. This group is my family. And I think of that story, and I think of Matthew's account that we just read, when I hear these kinds of questions that you see on the screen, and I listen to the tearful lament of our LGBTQ friends and family members who are rejected for who they are by their biological family. I received last week a, an email from a father whose daughter is gay and uh, her, his daughter is you know in her 30s now and so they've had a long history, a long relationship, and I got permission from Rick to uh, put his email to me to share that with you. This is what he said. I had to have a crucial conversation just yesterday with my sister that she would not be invited to my table because of her and her husband's unkind comments about gay people. My gay daughter will be present at my table. And I will protect and stand up for her as long as I'm on this earth. Thank you, Rick Blue, for that letter. I don't know if Rick is here today. He always sits behind Denise and me and I think he is here. Thank you, Rick Ballou. And I want every individual who asked the question to have in their family somebody or have in their life somebody like, like Rick. And when we stand up to include someone Unfortunately, it means that others are going to be excluded who don't include. It's weird, isn't it? <laughs> we want to be inclusive. But sometimes those who are exclusive won't be included. <laughs> and I wish it weren't that way, but I think it is. Jesus, by his mealtime associations, just turned the world upside down. He was amazingly courageous and intensely controversial. 
And I think his disciples and his other followers were just scared to death. I'm sure they had ulcers. And I can hear Peter saying to John, what is he saying? Did he really say that? We're all going to die. <laughs> and sure enough, he was so controversial, and he upset the system to the degree that the religious leaders became partners with the government leaders to execute him. Jesus aimed his harshest criticism at those who excluded others from the meal that God had prepared for all. You know, we're familiar with these signs from our history in the United States. Another letter that I received this past week from Betsy O'Neill, who was, she and Joe Bob last week were watching us online, as so many do, and I'm so thankful for y'all who do that. But uh, she gave me permission to tell her story as well. She says, we were in Arkansas visiting friends when Ruby Bridges was escorted by the National Guard into that high school. These friends of my parents were, she says, good Christian people, but not on that particular day. I could not understand their anger. It made no sense to me that they were so angry. Of course, being the outspoken child that I was, I had to bring up the fact that I thought there was nothing wrong with going to school with black people, and they are good dancers. <laughs> Threw that in there. Well, she says it went downhill from there. I don't think we were ever invited back to their house. It's hard for a child to figure out all of that. Jesus was right to bless the children, the most deserving of all. Well, that's all in the past, isn't it? All this sign. That doesn't happen anymore, does it? Mm -hmm. Take a look at this video. Yeah, it's not in the past. I only get frustrated with people who say, Philip, get over it. Nobody's like that anymore. Yeah. I just thank you all for being part of a community that is truly visionary where everybody belongs and creating a community where everybody belongs.